John Russell, who, who you know soon soon became the, the art critic of the New York Times, said that it was one of the three or four most beautiful and rare works of art to be sold since World War II. In 1970, that made a million dollars, made a little over a million dollars, which was a record sum of the time. To give a little bit of sense of, of, of price reference, in the same sale, Yo Picasso, which is one of Picasso's signature um, paintings from 1901, which later made $49 million in the late 80s, made $350,000. Welcome to the Artelligence Podcast. Live arts look behind the scenes at how the global art market really works. I'm your host, Marion Maniker. This podcast is brought to you by Live Art, the global art marketplace that puts you in control. Download the Live Art app to get all of the most relevant art market information, as well as access to exclusive private sales. Or visit us at liveart.io. Next week, Christie's will auction off the billion-dollar collection of Microsoft co-founder Paul G. Allen. Allen left day-to-day work at the company in 1983 after being diagnosed with lymphoma. Nearly a decade later, he began collecting art. Over the next 26 years, Allen amassed a very large collection of works from a broad range of artists. There were several themes to his collecting, but also a determination to own the best examples of an artist's work. In this podcast, we're going to talk to Christie's chairman, Mark Porter, about the role philanthropy plays in the Allen sale and more broadly for collectors today. Then we'll speak to Max Carter, International Director of Impressionist and Modern Art, about the various objects, as well as the surprisingly difficult task of coming up with estimates for works in a billion dollar collection. Let's start with Mark on the philanthropy angle. I think what's extraordinary about this sale is that it is the greatest and largest art auction on behalf of philanthropy in a decade in which there have been other great, important sales for philanthropy, probably most notably the Rockefeller sale, uh, but also a number of others that that have been held in the past couple of years. And Paul Allen, as a philanthropist, the precise outlines of which we don't precisely know yet because they are in planning for um, the ultimate uh, announcement of the ultimate project. And I don't know the time frame for that. But during his lifetime alone, he gave away more than two and a half billion dollars. And this adding potentially more than a billion dollars is extraordinary. And I, I've been looking at what he has funded before. And of course, on the www.paulallen.com website, uh, they they discuss a number of his other efforts, which of course have been environmental, artificial, artificial intelligence, brain, and also so timely for us now, communicable diseases and especially Ebola. And I was I've just been struck at how once again he was so visionary during his life about the challenges and opportunities that we're facing. I have two questions related to that. I, the The first one is just about Alan as a collector. I think you've mentioned in the past he, there was a traveling exhibition several years ago 
uh, organized around the idea of the landscape, which I gather is not controlling the entire collection, but is at the heart of the collection. There are a number of very important landscape uh, works. Landscapes were important to him because they both were um, a memento and uh, a way of reliving uh, places that he'd be been because he had, uh, you know, uh, landscape paintings uh, uh, of those uh, similar pl places, but also, you know, was sort of central to his idea of how art unified experience. So one, I was hoping you could talk a little bit about uh, that. And then maybe we can uh, get back to this question of philanthropy and why so many of these collections are being used to fund philanthropic uh, endeavors. You'll see in our in our lobby, in the lobby gallery, we've created a, a digital map of his collection, both chronologically and then by four great organizing themes. Sense of place. And so it's Venice. It's the American Southwest, those places that he loves so much. The other is visionaries of light. So his fascination with the perception and conveying of, of, of light, uh, visionary with respect to portraiture and insight. And this overarching theme of this visionary of place and landscape, the sense that or the, the observation that each place is so precious and singular, and you see it from whether it's Turner and Venice or Hockney and Yorkshire or George O'Keefe, the specificity of observation of each of those artists becomes so clear, and yet the connection of all of those artists through that lens of observing a place and conveying the light in that place or the hills in that place then becomes a through line as well. So it's this fascinating sort of expansion of the way that one thinks about a particular work of art and then a narrowing of the way one thinks about it. It's pulling the lens far, far back and then together joining them with each other and then taking them apart from each other. And it's, it's mind expanding to look at the collection that way. Let me just read uh, to you a quote from uh, Paul Allen in the um, introduction to that exhibition. Looking at the world through a painter's sensibility, like reading a poem or listening to music, heightens our consciousness of the particularities of a scene and can affect our response to nature itself. I think, you know, what you haven't mentioned is, you know, in this interest in the brain and uh, uh, science, you haven't mentioned that he also had a, you know, an enthusiasm for sports and music. And, you know, during his lifetime, he owned the, uh, most of the Seattle sports teams. And um, he created this uh, popular culture museum uh, out there and was notable for his own guitar playing, but his, you know, passion for also Seattle-born uh, uh, Jimi Hendrix. And and you're the one who steered me towards that, that quote. I just wondered if you wanted to comment a little more, more on it, because it seems to capture not just the landscape part of this, but really his whole approach to art collecting, which, you know, comes relatively late in his life. I mean, he's already sold, um, not sold, he's already stepped back from uh, Microsoft uh, a good nine years before he actually goes to the Tate. 
and has this experience where he, I mean, assuming also realizes he has the means to acquire many of uh, works on par with what he's seeing in the uh, museum and begins this 26 year uh, collecting journey. I, I think that question is, in, I'll, I'll answer that in, in two parts. The first refers to the late in life element. He died so young, he was in his 60s. So actually, this person in his mid-30s identified and bought some of the most important and groundbreaking works of art. As soon as he began to collect, there was this visionary, this ability to see things and choose extraordinary objects. That is that is a a talent, a genius that one sees so rarely. I I am now at the age where I think of the th being in the 30s as young. So I think he's a very he was a very young and vibrant collector. Um, in terms of the the other interests, I, he he has been described correctly as a polymath. He he was interested in all things: pop culture, ancient culture, cultures, the natural world, outer space, the elements. There's nothing it seems that he wasn't interested in and that's for me why i have great faith that whatever the philanthropies are they will be in the spirit and the legacy of that kind of exploration writ large so let's go back to the of you know uh, phil the philanthropic element here as you mentioned er earlier uh, you had the rockefeller sale and the amon sale uh, last year, the Rockefellers have famously have a, a family trust, and so the the objects that uh, David Rockefeller and his wife had acquired in the lifetime were available uh, to to devote to uh, philanthropy. The Amans had no heirs and had a project that they were deeply interested in, so there was there was no competition uh, with that. But it does seem these days m more of these large art collections are being sold for the purpose of funding uh, philanthropy. Now, in in Alan's case, there's a very large fortune in uh, uh, you know in Vulcan and uh, you know one presumes still in Microsoft uh, uh, stock, so it's not competing with uh, uh, other endeavors. Uh, but I, I was just curious: is this a a Sort of an estate planning th thing where it it's ver very particular to the um, situation of the family, or is it there's something about collecting art that also seems to prompt wanting to devote the resources or the proceeds to philanthropy? Because this is a big part of what you do uh, at, at Christie's is um, you know uh, uh, appeal to these uh, estates uh, that this is an option for them. Well, he was one of the most prominent signatories to the giving pledge. And I would think presumably that the, this will become the largest, if not one of the largest estates that fulfill that promise, which is to give away all or most of one's wealth created during a lifetime to philanthropic efforts. And he's, during his lifetime, as I've noted, gave money to various very interesting and serious pursuits. And I believe that this is part of that promise to, to, to fund the future. That makes sense. Yeah. Over the last 15 or 20 years, Art has become far more valuable than most people expected it to be. Starting with the GAN sale in the mid-90s was one of the first times where the family's, the bulk of their net worth 
was in the uh, uh, art collection, and the sale was essential to the heirs having, you know, a, a, an equal disposition of the estate in a way that everyone was going to be happy with. Uh, and so it, it's almost there's more competition now for these proceeds to go to the families than there is necessarily to be um, donated to some sort of institution, whether the art being donated uh, to institutions itself. But yet we're also seeing this trend of people using the proceeds of these sales for um, you know funding uh, uh, charitable donations and, and maybe it's just it's a coincidence or it's the changing nature of wealth but uh, I thought it was you know a curious part of all of this my personal view is that it's also a function of the distribution of wealth in the country and the distinction between people who buy works of art like the Ganses as a, a family that that had some, capital resources, but not enormous resources compared with the collectors who have vast financial resources and therefore their estate planning can be fundamentally different. It's It also in a way starts to illuminate what seems to be evolving in terms of using art to fund philanthropy generally in, and in other areas rather than the building of municipal museums in the art, sort of art museums for the public good or private art museums, whether it's one in Washington, D.C. just opening or all over the country. But I think when you then really dig into that, you see that there have always been Isabella Stewart Gardeners. There's always been Albert Barnes. There's always been the Wallace the collection and the Frick. Yeah. It's, it is, it is, maybe it's a phenomenon, phenomenon of our time, but it, it seems that element seems also to have always been there. The distinction that seems to be growing is using works of art to fund broader philanthropic interests. And that, I, I think that that's not such a bad a bad result. No, no. Who, who can complain about it? And it, it adds a new sort of twist uh, to, um, you know, some of the frustrations people have with the art market that there are people who are recognizing, like Agnes Gund, that y y if you are... Uh, art rich as it were, were that the the easiest thing to do is then turn that into uh, proceeds that drive uh, some sort of uh, charitable uh, goal rather than necessarily just uh, you know a more capital to pass along to uh, heirs in one form or another see we've solved all the ills of the world you did very with the most with the most beautiful example you could possibly have. so <laughs> thank you so well, much I really, I really appreciate it. Thank you. Max Carter, thank you for taking the time to talk to me about the Paul Allen collection. Delighted to be here. I thought we could just start with a bit of an overview. You know, we've had these great collections, uh, usually of, of an older generation, you know, people in their 80s and 90s uh, who started collecting in the post-war period. Paul Allen you know, fits that in one way in the sense that, uh, uh, you know, he grew up in the um, 50s and 60s and he was obviously uh, had the means to do the kind of collecting that very few people uh, can do. But he also wasn't quite of that generation. 
And he seems to have a, a distinctive uh, approach. And I'm wondering if you could talk to me a little bit uh, about, you know, what you see as uh, the sort of organizing theme of this vast collection. Of course, I, I think I think I think you know it's it's be, you know, the, the unique thing about the collection you know, that sets it apart from virtually anything else we've ever handled. Like it is is the is the the, the range, and it's hard it's hard to to apply one organizing principle to someone who collected over 500 years, um, you know, from from the 1480s to the 1980s. So it's it's I think there there are you know a few a few different you know principles that probably applied to everything. I think first and foremost, you know, he 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 was someone who obviously looked at the world in a slightly different way, and who who you know who be, through his his vision and his innovations, obviously our our lives are are different. And and he was you know drawn whether it's you know looking at an old master painting or looking at a painting from ten years ago or a sculpture or a or or a, or a drawing or a watercolor. You know, drawn to artists who looked at who looked at things differently, and let's say you know beyond beyond or, or set apart from their from their contemporaries, and that can be you know Cezanne in the 1880s, you know, kind of deconstructing and reconstructing, um, you know, Monson Victoire, or it can be you know Jasper Johns in the 1960s, um, uh, and and I think that's that's probably the most the most consistent and general through line, and then of course there are, there are many you know things that he that he particularly responded to, you know, amazing landscape. Um, you know, a collection of landscapes of different types, and I, obviously, you, know, you have sort of dreamy landscapes like Magritte. You have Klimt in this in this you know nymphias on land kind of uh, you know square format, enveloping um, sort of amazing experience. And then you have you know, so let's say more literal landscapes too. So a great a great range there. Venice resonated with him. So so you know something like a dozen works um, that that feature and the, the atmosphere and light in Venice. So you know a few a few different things. I think that just that sense though of looking at the world in a different way and being drawn to artists who did that is probably the, the broadest principle. So I also noticed that there are many works here that were owned by interesting people, either as collectors or their connection to artists. And I'll just give you an example. The Picasso that opens the sale was owned by the director, Mike Nichols. Uh, Diane Keaton owned one of the works uh, later on in the sale, the Tansy. There was a Kandinsky from the Guggenheim Museum. Uh, One of his, uh, John's works came straight from the artist. The Max Ernst came from both the Guggenheim uh, collection and Sabarsky. There's a, a, a Seurat that was owned by André Durin. There's a Magritte that was commissioned by André Breton, the uh, surrealist uh, thinker. The, there's a Gauguin that was owned by David Rockefeller and another Diego Rivera purchased from the Rockefeller Sale. There's a Giacometti from Pierre Matisse, a Wyeth from Armand Hammer, uh, a Van Gogh from Joan Whitney Payson. Uh, 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 the Cezanne was owned by Empiricos, one of the great, you know, uh, Greek shipping collectors. Uh, I mean, I, 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 oh, there's there's the connection with the one of the Syrahs with the Barnes uh, uh, and all. Is that? coincidence of sort of collecting the best of the best you're going to get in that kind of company or is that part of the decision making do you think i, th- I think coincidence i mean you we could go on and on i mean the turner was owned by jp morgan the Seurat painting was owned by john quinn you know the organizer of the armory show yeah like and you you hit you hit so many great ones i mean there's hollywood tony richardson owned one of the one of the works um, the, the, the director so yeah i think i think it's it's you know it's in, in, inadvertent in some ways and that obviously that you know i don't think provenance you know, who owned it 
previously was was an overriding overriding decision. But I think you know, in the same way that when people look at this collection subconsciously or consciously, the fact the, the the you know the fact that these works were all collected by this one you know this this sort of immense collecting achievement wrapped up in this one person, I think that will have um, that will be will be um, you know w- w- uh, probably was part of his part of his you know like uh, again at some level part of the process and and i think in some ways there's some of those some of these figures i mean of course he had such a great such an amazing range of of you know accomplishments and, and pursuits you know it's probably not surprising that you know he look he did things in in sports and in technology and in hollywood and all these areas it's probably not surprising that there are figures from virtually all of those fields uh, represented i mean the monet was owned by was owned by oppenheim you know who's, who's a great friend of einstein's and in, 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 was based at princeton for many years you know looked at he probably you know looked at the world in a similar in a similar way and am i wrong did he once have uh, the thought of opening a museum uh, in Seattle, was that part of the sort of collecting idea here? Or is that just uh, an, an an apocryphal embellishment on my part? There and you know there are a number of of, of things in Seattle. I mean the the Mopop, you know the, the, the sort of you know music center and and there's you know a, a, a museum dedicated to, to to you know technology and innovation. I don't in terms of art, I don't I don't know that, but but you know certainly lots of institutional. Um, Lots, lots of you know inst- institutions that he that he helped or created in, in, in Seattle. And do you think that this provenance is going to be attractive or add value down the line? I mean, he's maybe it's just because of the the names, not one to conjure with, like uh, some of the great uh, uh, collections. And part of this is, uh, you know, his his reputation is so overshadowed by Microsoft and uh, these other aspects uh, uh, of his life. But you know, as you pointed out, this is a a collection in many cases of best examples of uh, so many different kinds of uh, works. And I'm just curious whether that's the selling point here or it's just simply these are great works and this is... You know, one of those few moments. I think I think it's both, Marion. I think I think look the the you know these these works. You know the the collection is so amazing because it has such range, and that's that's you know top to bottom, and that's you know across five hundred years across price points. But you know when you and for, you know especially for those who, who who come in and see all of the works hanging and kind of living together, it's you know it's breathtaking. It's just it's an immense immense achievement. You know it it, it collected most of these things over you know from let's say around nineteen ninety two or the early nineties until twenty eighteen. In the year he passed away, and you know, 26 years is a, is a long time in some ways, but it's it's not really to to create to create something like this. And I think anyone who sees all these things together, and again, who grasps this this achievement, you know, I don't see how that can't how that can't be a you know a, 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 that sense of, of of buying into this into this once in a lifetime collection. How that can't be a part of the part of the decision making, and that's not just true of this sale, but but you know, yeah, as you say, many years down the line. Uh, I hate to talk shop, but I am kind of interested in the um, estimates on a lot of these works. Uh, you know, we're at a high point in the market, so in many ways, the top estimates are less, uh, you know, surprising than that. There are many es- estimates throughout that are uh, not very aggressive. And I, I mean, I understand that markets change and there are times when things are more um, valuable. And also, you know, some things are bought recently and bringing them back to the market has an effect on the estimates and, and all. But I, I got the sense uh, or my guess is that it's a tough time to do a lot of this uh, estimating because many of these works, um, you know, 
were bought in different uh, market periods. And you also want to get people involved, right? You don't want people to assume that everything from the sale is going to have a high eight-figure estimate. How did you guys go about estimating all of this? You've got a tiny Syrah with a very large estimate on it. So by square inch, it's probably one of the most valuable uh, uh, works. But you've also got uh, many things, some of them that are being, you know, estimated below where they sold, you know, in the last 10 years. Yeah, look, I, I, it, it's, I, you know, our, our feeling across the sale is that the estimates are very conservative and, and, and you know, meant to be enticing and, to, and to, to draw the greatest, you know, quantity of bidders. And obviously we've seen with, with other, you know, different, but other, other collections in estates, great estates we've had recently, you know, the Cox um, sale we had in, back in 2021, of course, Bass and, and Amon um, in the spring that, you know, if you, if you, if you estimate things appropriately across the board, you're going to have, you're going to have the best, you know, the, the, the maximum results. Um, in the end, and I guess, yeah, two, two, two examples. One, you referenced the Syrah. There is no comparable for that, of course. That is a, that is an irreplaceable painting. You know, it's, it was, it was sold at, at auction once in 1970 at Christie's in London. And at the time, uh, John Russell, who, who, you know, soon, soon became the, the art critic of the New York Times, said that it was one of the three or four most beautiful, rare works of art to be sold since World War II. And that was back in 1970. In 1970, that made a million dollars, made a little over a million dollars, which was a record sum of the time. To give a little bit of sense of, of, of price reference, in the same sale, Yo Picasso, which is one of Picasso's signature um, paintings from 1901, which later made $49 million in the late 80s, made $350,000. Um, there is no comp for the Syrah. Do 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 the math is what you're saying. <laughs> it's more, and then Yo Picasso is certainly worth more than forty nine million dollars today. Um, so our, look, our feeling it's it's at a hundred million. The record for Syrah is thirty five. This is an artist who died when he was thirty one. He painted a handful of out and out masterpieces, of which this is one. And in my in my view, is the finest pointless painting. Full stop. Um, and and I yeah, I mean a hundred. It's 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 it feels strange to say this, but a hundred feels very conservative for something that is irreplaceable, um, and for which there is no if you, you know if you miss if you miss out on it this time, there's there's no there's no there's no tomorrow really. And then at a, at a different level, I think something like the Bonnard that we have a great 1935 still life, which at the time, and like many of the works in the collection, um, was, was the world record for the artist when, when um, Paul Allen bought, bought it from Christie's in 2006. He, you know, the, at the time he paid over $8 million for it. Our estimate today is three to 5 million. And that's that's not because, you know, for great Bonnard, the, the, rec- the record has been reset three times over since then. The record's now in the mid twenties, but or in the, in the twenties, the, 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 reason for having the estimate of three to five is just to make sure that this is, you know, you capture everyone who could possibly be interested in this, in this work. And it's, you know, we've, we've lauded it in the first, you know, 15 lots of the sale leads into the great Saison. So, you know, again, just wanting to make sure that people feel that, that, you know, it's not just these, these, it's not just that the works are masterpieces um, or that there's a great range in the collection, but that everything for, for what it is, is priced appropriately. And, and again, designed to, to draw them. And just going back to Syrah, you've got the um, charcoal drawings. I think there are two of them. Them that are quite conservatively uh, estimated compared to comparable uh, works that have sold not so long ago. The, uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, look, the, the study for the Grand Jatte, it's, you know, again, Sarah lived to be 31. There are very few drawings, let alone paintings, and fewer still drawings of iconic subjects. And and this, this the, the, the um, Conte drawing in the evening sale and the part one sale um, is, is, the, is, is arguably the most recognizable figure in, in, in Sarah's, uh, which is the, the 
a woman with a bustle on the right side of the ground shot. And as you say, it belonged to Andre Dermott. So yeah, not, nothing not to like there. And at one million, two million, that was very, it was very, yeah, sir. And I suppose it's hard, especially since the exhibition hasn't gone up, but you're clearly been speaking to clients and they know this thing is uh, out there and cu- coming. It, it, it's got to have a pretty broad catchment, right? There's there's a lot of different people you're, you're going to here. So I'm sure you can make lots of phone calls, but you're also getting inbound and will continue as the exhibition goes up, get more uh, inbound uh, interest. Are, are you at all surprised by you know where some of the interest is coming from. I mean, we don't get collectors. We we have talked about over the last few years breaking down these boundaries, and that there aren't necessarily you know impressionist or artist uh, uh, specific collectors uh, anymore. And this seems like the kind of sale that you would bring in many people who might you know, for lack of a better term, just be shopping. Yeah. Well, look, I'm, I mean, I hope I'm I'm I'm. You know, I, I can say I'm shocked and surprised when we get close to the sale by by the extent to which this is true. But you know, going you know when we when we sort of put the catalog to to, to send the catalog to the printers and are setting up the exhibition now. I mean, I think because of the range, because of the quality, and because of who he was, and 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 the fact that this is all going to charity too. I mean, 100 percent of the estate's proceeds are are, are going to philanthropic for philanthropic causes. It's it's one you know some sales you know let's say you have four quadrants, some sales you need to get one quadrant, two quadrant. I mean, this is. Everyone who, who buys art, everyone who aspires to buy art, everyone who, who you know, look, if you're a photography collector, there, we, the, in the sale is the great Steichen photograph. If you are a collector of post-impressionist works, they're the four, arguably the four most important post-impressionist works to come to auction in generation. Um, you know, it, it, whatever whatever your interest is, chances are over 500 years, there's something for you in this sale. And I think, again, with 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 price points in the in the, in the the part one sale from 600,000 to 120 million, it, you know, I think our, our view is that we hope to capture everyone all of our clients um and and that everyone you know all of our clients everyone who works at christie's you know is participating and helping and pushing in the same direction to to to, to this result so i you know i think we hope that that you know that that's certainly how the, the feedback we've had since we sent works on tour to the various locations of asia and europe and america but i think our hope is that that is um that you know that that is borne out tenfold by the time we get to the, to the sale itself anything else we want to specifically call out i mean i that i love this tiny dolly uh, a painting and there was another small one last year was it or earlier this year that uh, you know it's a similar estimate made 10 yeah and and the, and the dolly also it's a it's a it's a painting which um this is a, this is a small 1934 oil that refers to um to vermeer and and the view at delft um and is uh you know as, as you said there's a small work which made um which made 10, 10 earlier this year, four to six. This is also four to six million. Um, he paid two and a half for it when he bought it 15 years ago. So again, the price the price feels very, uh, very conservative. But do those kinds of prices, re- are they relevant in this discussion? I mean, the, 15 years ago was a lifetime, uh, two lifetimes in this art market uh, ago. And, you know, again, it's an estate, so the, the cost basis is less of the uh, concern uh, uh, with it. And, uh, you know, that's part of what we just previously discussed, that you're sort of pricing things to match interest rather than necessarily the, the market or uh, the previous a- acquisition. So I, I, I assume in a lot of these cases, it really doesn't matter whether you paid, you know, $8 million for the Bernard and, you know, it'll make what it does. You, the Max Ernst is another example, you know, a, a recently a uh, from the same cast, I'm assuming, but the same uh, uh, work sold for, 
you know, significantly more than where you have it uh, priced at. So if people are are using, you know, uh, a, a database to look at these uh, uh, prices, even if they're, you know, three, four years o- old, they're not necessarily um, relevant in, in this period in, in both directions. One, because, you know, we've had this surge of liquidity in the global economy, but two, we've got this sense of trepidation uh, about the, the future financially. So... I guess that I guess that to me is what's so interesting about you know uh, doing this at this time is uh, you've you've got these uh, countervailing forces and these extraordinary works uh, it, it sort of puts everything into you know uh, uh, equipoise I guess is the word I'm looking for totally and I think I think our look we we welcome people to you know that's the you know having good estimates we you know it's it's great when people. Get, look at past prices and comparables because it shows you the setting aside the, the masterpiece context of the sale that on an individual basis the estimates are you know very correct and conservative and and you can you can see see that both in terms of what the pieces made in the past but also what similar works or works of its let's say the same you know date period um, and 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 scale and medium are making but I think I think though that it's sort of a two tier I think for works for which there are comparables and then Dolly falls in that category. It's it's you know it's it's eminently justifiable and, and very very easy for someone to follow along the price there and see that it's worth more than the than the asset range we have on it. It's with those higher end works for which they're like the Syrah or or frankly you know the the, the Gauguin or the Cezanne or the Klimt um, or the Freud or the Botticelli where there there aren't there aren't comparables at the you know recent comparables at these levels because great works of art just don't really. You know they don't they don't come up and so for the Surah the the, the closest comparable was, was was 1970 and I think you know you have to draw out things like okay well, what did Yoko Picasso make at the time and what what do what do the you know the greatest masterpieces sell for five at an auction today you know if you look at the the Gauguin you know he paid 39 for it in 2004 which is the record nothing as good as been you know, that that was the most important painting to have been up since 2004 and where do you find the comparable for that and and you know did up the Cezanne and and the Freud as well this was a painting which freud considered to be his masterpiece as he was painting and what what you know what what kind of price can you put on that and that was the record where he bought it in 1998 um and it's it's you know that it's it's a, it's a very interesting intellectual exercise and i think you know the, the the prices that we've arrived at and the estimates again for instance the surat 100 when you think of how important this work and some of these works are within the artist's you know, artist career, and then within within sort of the history of modern art, they they feel like like the Dali and like these other things for which they're comparables. You know, conservative. I can't leave this whole subject without bringing up the fascinating fact that in the day sale there are these two Loren Harris uh, uh, paintings. You know, from this uh, great Canadian uh, uh, painter, and it's a, I, I still want to bring us back to the beginning of like, how, how did this man make these decisions? I mean, you know, Steve Martin had done that great show. I can't remember whether this the, those purchases are before or after it, but it, it's like there there are great works from such a wide range of different artists in these two sales and in geographies. I mean, I, I happen to love that. I mean, I'm, I should tell you, I'm half my half Canadian. My father's Canadian, so I, I, I'm, I'm particularly partial to those. But you know, it's he was, he was. We won't hold that against you. <laughs> well, you know, nowadays I'm, I'm, you know, more proud of it than ever. But, um, but, but you know, you're, you're looking. He was someone who traveled widely, so you know, not just you know these these slightly unexpected Canadian landscapes, but there are three great landscapes in the Part Two cell by an artist called Pierneff, who's a South African landscapist, um, who 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 
you know, is, is not often sold in this context. And it's great to, to, to offer them this way. And yeah, you know, there's, there's many, many unexpected things. I and mean, I think for, for me, the most unexpected were two, two unexpected things. One is, you know, the fact that, you know, seeing that just the power of seeing these were all these works together is, 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 is overwhelming and, and unlike anything. And I really, you know, encourage and sort of shaking lapels of everyone I know to come in and see it because it really is once in a lifetime. But the two great surprises were, you know, the, 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 let's say the quality and extent of the old masters, because, you know, the Botticelli is one of the most beautiful things I've seen at Christie's. And I, you know, had no idea that, that he had owned it, although he, you know, had been exhibited at the National Gallery um, and other places. And then, you know, other things like the artists he wrote, like Harris, like Pierre Neff, or like, you know, the fact that the Steichen, you know, something like the, the what, what is one of the, you know, the, the most important photographs in private hands, you know, it's, it's not, it's not someone who just said, I, you know, I'm, I'm really going to focus on, you know, late 19th, early 20th century and maybe do a little bit of post-war. It's someone who really just, you know, took, took, took a broad, a broad scope of 500 years, did it in a relatively compressed period of time and made relatively few mistakes. There it is. Couldn't, there's, there's nothing more to be said, Max. That's perfect. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for joining us at the Artelligence Podcast, edited by Colin Ketchin, who also composed the original music. For more episodes, listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to download the LiveArt app or visit us at liveart.io. Please join us for the next episode of the Artelligence Podcast. We're looking forward to it. <laughs>